Discover the Mediterranean secret to optimal health and longevity with GMT 23 Greek Mountain Tea from Terry Naturally. These capsules are stronger than a cup of brewed tea and support overall health, including liver health, digestion, and cognitive function. Now for the first time ever, this botanical is available in supplemental form in the United States. Find GMT 23 Greek Mountain Tea at your local health food store or terrynaturalvitamins.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Danny Wu is a Canadian filmmaker who is best known for his film Square One, a film about the 1993 Michael Jackson allegations and his current film American, an odyssey to 1947. The latter, which was placed on Jonathan Rosenbaum's list for Best Films of 2022. Now, American, an odyssey to 1947, follows the rise and fall of Orson Welles while interweaving stories of diverse individuals amidst the backdrop of the Great Depression, World War II, and the dropping of the atomic bomb. Director Danny Wu sheds light on the defining moments that shaped the destinies of the subjects and the nation's collective consciousness in 1947. A riveting film, indeed. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome a filmmaker who seems to be wiser than his years and a storyteller that is equal to the many veteran film directors that we know today, such as Spielberg, Coppola, and Stone, the one and only Danny Wu. Welcome, Danny. Pleasure to be here, Mr. Vaughn, and um, looking forward to talking to you. Well, I'll tell you one, one thing about this film. I mean, for you, what inspired you to create it? Um, I think I was, I was, and during the pandemic, um, I was home a lot, just watching a lot of movies. And, um, you know, I was kind of like, if I'm getting into this filmmaking thing, you know, I want to study the classics. I'm behind on the game. You know, I didn't go to film school or anything like that. And so on every cinephile list, there's one movie that's always at the top and it's Citizen Kane. And, um, that was the first movie that I watched, but there's also a movie that I kept coming back to. And um, when I started researching more about the film and I realized that the same person directed it, the same person starred in it, the same person co-wrote it, fascinated me. What fascinated me more was the fact that, you know, he seemingly never got the same opportunity again. And so I wanted to create a documentary. At that point, not even a documentary, I wanted to create a YouTube video, like a 15 minute YouTube video about Orson Welles just teaching my generation about his story, you know, because I thought I thought it was very interesting. And so as I started um, re, um, writing the writing the YouTube video, and um, I started reaching out to a peop to some people who were Orson Welles authors and stuff like that. And I learned that there's so much more to Orson Welles than just, you know, Citizen Kane. And from there, the idea kind of just blossomed. And um, you know, one thing led to another, and that's how we kind of got the film that we have today. Well, you bring up Citizen Kane, and as I was watching your film, it dawned on me that Orson Welles, was, he was only 25 years old. Um, did that surprise you? And did that also kind of uh, inspire you to know that even though you were basically... Uh, around the same age and yeah, I uh, I realizing not. that you were stepping into an area that uh, is brand new to you because with Orson Welles, he was a really a radio guy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that that did kind of play a big part because I think when I, you know, when the idea kind of started, I had just turned 24 
And um, to think that someone my age at that point, like got this opportunity in Hollywood, it's just, it was fascinating to me. And, um, you know, it, his, him being that young, I think definitely helped with a lot of the creative aspects because he didn't really, like he said, you know, he didn't play by the rules. Um, his ignorance is what drove him forward. And, um, you know, a lot of that kind of just, just spoke to me and um, I really wanted to, to showcase that. Well, I think ignorance is bliss. And I think when it comes to filmmaking, sometimes I believe that it's great not to know everything because then you just kind of fall into the rut that everybody else, you know, they go, they go through the pattern or they go through the model and we have to have trailblazers like Orson Welles or Quentin Tarantino, uh, you know, Rodriguez, the step outside the box and just kind of throw away the manual and just do what you think you see through the camera lens. Now, with your documentary, I understand that this film is split into two halves. What are they? Well, um, I think it's split into two halves, like tonally speaking, in a way. Like the first half is kind of about, you know, this romantic rise of this Hollywood director against this like evil. Um, you know, it's like kind of Orson Welles and Franklin Roosevelt against um, William Randolph Hearst. And at the end of the story, you know, it comes to, at the end of the first half, it kind of comes to uh, a conclusion on, on, on that battle. In the second half of the movie, it kind of transitions into more of a, um, a grounded look into America at that point of time. You know, we start seeing um, how people of different ethnicities and different social backgrounds were living at that time. And, um, how that, you know, the people that we were supporting in the first half, they're kind of complicit in creating this environment um, for the other people at that time. So I think it, it kind of throws, the second half kind of throws you more into the realities of life in the 40s at the time. So I think um, speaking about the two halves tonally, the first half kind of draws you in as in the story about this great director. And the second half it drops you into the rap, the reality of um, 40s at that time. Well, I remember when my father told all of us when we were kids about Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio broadcast and how the nation, well, it created nationwide panic. I mean, what was your reaction to learn that many in America thought it was real? <laughs> wow, I think... Um... You know, when I first heard about it, it was kind of, you know, I was like, there's no way they, they thought it was like real, right? Um, but as I, you know, studied the context of the nation, the nation's panic at that time, this was in the heart of World War II, you know, right right as World War II was beginning. And um, I think Mr. Richard Franz, he explained to me this idea that, you know, people were thinking, you know, if it's not aliens, it also might be, you know, some type of device that the Germans were throwing at us, you know, like people didn't really understand the, um, what was going on. And I think it just, it, it didn't really, because it was, um, that long ago, it didn't really like surprise me that much, but, um, I think to see how that propelled his career forward. I think that's what um, compelled me the most to, um, you know, focus on that section a little bit. Yeah, you know, um, what a lot of people don't understand, if 
ladies and gentlemen, if you have never listened to War of the Worlds from the very beginning, and I mean from the very beginning of that broadcast, what happened across the nation is that most people tuned in after the intro, so they didn't know that it was fictitious. So they're picking up what sounds like this breaking news story, and I think that's where the panic ensued. Is that correct? Yes, um, there was actually a much bigger radio show that was going on at the same time, but their vocal, the vocalist was replaced that day. And so a lot of the people from the big channels were, you know, they were searching around for another radio station to listen to. While doing that, they came across War of the Worlds. So I think that that was just fascinating to me. And the fact that that propelled Wells to Hollywood, you know, all that luck that had to go into that and he was being interrogated the entire night (laughs) it's just i think i think more people um they'll be really they'll be really surprised at that story because it's just it does not seem real you know yeah yeah. and it it is a story all its own and you know if, if something like that happened today the dj would be arrested and fired and probably never be in media again. But, you know, back in that day, media was really, in a sense, it was really still new and people were still trying to navigate the territory. Now for you, how did you gather up those who appeared in the film to help tell this incredible intertwining story? I mean, was it just one connection leading to all the others? A a little bit like that, actually. And so I think... The first person I interviewed was um, the author Harlan Lebo. He wrote a book about Citizen Kane. After I interviewed him, you know, that's when I kind of realized that originally I wanted to just do, you know, as I said, the YouTube video through Zoom, kind of like how we're doing it right now and just put that into a video. But after I did my first interview, I realized that, you know, there's so much more to Orson Welles. And so the second person I hit up was um, the author Richard France. And he kind of introduced me to the story of Orson Welles and Isaac Woodard. And so from there, um, I started, you know, asking around for people who still um, know Isaac Woodard or was related to Isaac Woodard. Richard France also introduced me to Mr. Simon Callow. And um, from there, you know, once you have Simon Callow, you can, you can, more people have belief, have trust in your project that this is, you know, a legitimate production. And so I think, you know, with, but, but with every, every person that we, um, we got, it was just, it was a big moment for us. We all celebrated because um, it's just, it's, I had a dream list of everyone I wanted to interview and I was pretty much about like able to get all of them, you know? And I think the most fascinating part was that because we have the story of, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, Orson Welles, Isaac Woodard, you know, the people who specialize in each story, they don't really know as much about the stories and the other aspects. Um, for example, even uh, with Orson Welles specifically, you know, he lived such a fascinating life that I tell people that you can drop into any moment of his life and you could probably, probably create a two hour movie. You know, because that, that's how interesting it is. And so with Orson Welles scholars, there are people who specialize in different aspects of his life. For example, Simon Callow is kind of like the Swiss army knife. He knows a little bit about everything in Orson's life. Um, someone like Catherine Benamou, she specializes in the Orson Welles in Brazil 
um, saga. Harlan Lebo, he specializes in um, Citizen Kane and James Nairmor, you know, stuff. It just, everyone kind of, I just had to get everyone together to tell like a collective story and know who to put on what, uh, what, what section. Because what I did was I also read all of their books before I sent an email. So I, I had to appear that I knew what I'm talking about. Right. So I kind of had to earn the respect in that sense. But um, for me, just being able to get everyone, it's um, I'm still joyful about it to this day. I'm so excited about it. You know, I can't believe it's real. Well, the people that you have in the film, they were the right ones. I will tell you that you did your homework and it's just an incredible story. And I love the way that the stories just intertwine with one another. Uh, I love the way that uh, this film really tackles the story of William Randolph Hearst, who has been credited as starting, well, media manipulation, uh, using the government to his advantage and to steer the public's perception about many things. Uh, Were you surprised that it had been going on for decades because where Hearst buddied up with the government to steer the government for his advantage. Now, today, we see the government literally steering the media to their advantage. Um, yeah, it was, um, it's very interesting to, you know, see 2020 and um, the society that we was in and trying to see, like, where the seeds were planted. You know, where did that begin? And uh, when I, the, the funny thing is I've actually, um, in my youth, during a family road trip, I've actually been to Hearst Castle. I remember that. I've been to like every room. I was really fascinated by it, but you know, I really wasn't listening to what the guys were saying. Um, so I, I don't, I didn't know the story that well at that time. So when I figured out that William Randolph Hearst is the guy that ruined Orson Welles' career, I'm like, I've been to his house, you know. So that's there's that connection for me there as well. And so, so. Um, when I started learning about Hearst and all the things that, you know, he was doing to basically, you know, control the media, control the narrative, um, it really spoke to me about, you know, the, how things are today. And um, that's one of the big reasons that um, I wanted to, to create the documentary, because I think that people are going to, you know, have some moments where they're like, oh, see, this is this is this is not much has changed. Um, because for someone my age, you know, when you talk to them about the 1940s or 1930s, it's like, oh, it's such a long time ago. You know, they don't even want to bother, like, listening to you at that point. And um, be- because you usually get the perspective that, oh, you know, everyone back then was a certain way. Everyone back then was, like, so behind, um, so racist or whatever. Um, but I wanted to show that people back then, they were also you know, progressives around. And um, they're just, people were fighting the right cause at that time. And in some ways, a lot some people were even more progressive than they are today. And so I wanted to, you know, also humanize the 30s and 40s and, you know, just kind of show where all that came from. Well, were you surprised that 1947 really paralleled, uh, let's say here in America, we'll just say the last three years? Um. I, I was I was pretty surprised, and um, the the one that the one that related to me the most was um you know Howard Kakita's story, and um, you know the Japanese American internment camps 
I remember, you know, when, when I came back to Canada, that was at the height of the COVID pandemic. And um, I do recall stories then of Asian Americans being attacked on the street. And, um, you know, I've had experiences of my own where people were following me around in a mall, just screaming at me, you know, kind of blaming me for COVID. And so I think that kind of spoke to me a little bit. And um, obviously, as you alluded to, the media manipulation, um, pitting groups against each other. And I think, um, you know, I think, I, th I think it's not for me to say, you know, if you, if people make that connection, but if they do, um, that would be, that, that would be fantastic as well. Well, you know, in your film, we have Hearst, Wells, Hollywood, the FBI, the NAACP, World War II, the atomic bomb, the Japanese internment camps. Um, so it was Citizen Kane, the movie that actually led you down this complex rabbit hole. I mean, I never thought of it like that, but <laughs> I mean, damn, if you put it like that, I guess, I guess so. I guess so. I guess it's, it's, it's really Citizen Kane. You know, it speaks to, it really speaks to the power of that film that 80 years later that is still having this impact on people. You know, how did, how did you go from Citizen Kane or studying Orson Welles to uh, finding out about Howard uh, Kakita? Um, so for me, I wanted to, you know, once I wanted to make a story about Orson Welles and Franklin Roosevelt, um, I realized that there was going to be a lot of, you know, whitewashing of FDR's history, you know, because if we just do that, it's going to be taught, it's, the entire film is just going to be about how great of a president FDR is and how we should just do everything his way, right? And um, kind of just whitewash, you know, some some of the other stuff that he did. And so I wanted to, as I said earlier, because it was in the 2020s, I, I wanted to find another story of the internment camps um, to put it in there. And, um, you know, I was always fascinated with the idea of different perspectives. I remember when I was young, his, when I was young, I used to, you know, because I came to Canada in 2000, 2004, I do recall, I always loved researching the films that came out that year and being like, wow, like Kill Bill um, part two came out that year. And I was, that, that was the same day that I was landing. You know, that, that was, that's crazy that, you know, that's, those two things are going on, even though like we don't know each other. So um, I wanted to kind of create that same experience, but in this, in this sense, you know, I was able to find Howard's story. I came across Howard's story. He's born in 1938, right? So that's exactly when War of the Worlds happened. He went back to Japan in 1940, and that's when production on Citizen Kane begun. And he, his parents were sent to the internment camps while Orson Welles is in Brazil, right? That's another part that always spoke to me was that while Orson is in Brazil, you know, making a propaganda film that they wanted him to make, Japanese citizens were being interned to the States. I thought it was interesting to juxtapose that. And um, ultimately, Howard Kakita comes back 1947 to America. Orson Welles leaves America in 1947. And so I wanted to build this two storylines that at the end of at the end of the movie, one person comes back to the U.S. and one person leaves the U.S. and um, the different the different um, 
forces that drove each other to that um, to those two decisions. And so that's ultimately kind of, you know, an insight into how how I put Howard's story into this. That's brilliant. And it also uh, is kudos to you for doing the research and putting all of those pieces together. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a film that everybody needs to watch. Uh, you know, a lot of people are very negative about what's going on today, but you got to realize it just didn't happen yesterday. It happened decades and decades ago. And Danny, as I was watching the film and then doing the research and, and writing up the interview, I started going back to the film and looking at it again and again. And I realized that there were some parallels between 1947 and today. There was Isaac Woodard versus George Floyd. There's mainstream media working with the government as of today. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI spying on Americans. And then today's FBI is still doing the exact same thing, but the FBI isn't holding public hearings that J. Edgar Hoover was known for to kind of out people that he deemed as a threat to the American way, which he, in a way, he, he was going to go after Orson Welles, but Orson Welles left the country. I mean, were you surprised That's, by the parallels of, I mean, I know we've already mentioned that, but the parallels yeah, yeah. of 1947 and today, um, the light think, is bright. I think um, it, it, it's kind of funny because um, I think the people, the people who get the parallel or they see the parallel, they seem to really, really love our film, you know, in our, in our first, I remember during the Austin Film Festival, we had two screenings. The first screening had around five or six people there. Um, the second screening though, you know, it was a rainy day and there was a huge lineup outside. And, um, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to like ask people like what they were lining up for. And I went outside and introduced myself and they said, oh, we're lining up for American. <laughs> and I was like, like, really? Um, how did you hear about this? And they said that, you know, it's from people who watched the movie the first day and um, they recommended it to us. And so we actually, for the second show, we had a pretty much a sold out crowd. And, um, you know, there were Japanese Americans there who were like, oh, we heard that, you know, the internment camp is being covered. There are people who were there who were like, oh, we heard about, you know, how you talked about um, Hearst and stuff like that. Um, but I think that audiences are, everyone is, kind of making making that connection that that you were you were alluding to and um for example the same thing happened in greece where we had one screening um because i think people kind of underestimated us in that we weren't able to draw a big crowd because story about the 30s but you know we were pretty much one of the only sold out screenings in the entire festival and the same thing happened just in london right now where we had we were invited to a one-week run at the bertha dock house and I just got an email yesterday inviting us to come back for a second week because we were the strongest performing documentary um, for, for, for that week. So to just see that, you know, people are able to, to watch the film as, and get the messages interpreting it in their own way, I think it's, uh, there's not much more I can ask for 
you know, I don't, I don't want to specifically be like, oh, I made this to connect it to today, you know, um, because I think, I think it's been, it's been really interesting to me, you know, when I ask questions at the Q and A and people are coming up with their, you know, their own comparisons and their, their own way that it relates to 2023. And I think it's, um, it's just been so gratifying to me. And I was so happy to hear about that from you. Well, I, what I loved about the way that you told the story, um, especially when there's a, there's this underlying tone that does not broadcast itself to the viewer. The viewer has to pick it up on their own. You don't yeah. point fingers in the areas of racism in this film. Um, and I, and I commend you for that. You're telling the true story and you're allowing the viewer to realize it on their own. I love the fact that for black Americans, they're going to see this film and they're going to appreciate the story. Asian Americans are going to appreciate the story because what I loved about Howard uh, Kakita is that the fact that he was born in America and we have an area of racism in America now that if you see someone who is Asian, you see someone who is Hispanic or Latino, a lot of people feel that they weren't born here, here that they just flew into the country or crossed the border, but that's not true. We have so many people of, of different um, cultures that were born here. And you bring that to light into this film in such a very subtle, very respectful way. And at the same time, I love the fact that Orson Welles, here he is, a white man, and he is defending and he's honoring Isaac Woodard, which if everybody could just hear that short speech that he gave, I think um, across our nation, the theme of loving one another and respecting one another regardless of color uh, would be even much more stronger than what the media is putting out today. So you did a stellar job. So thank you so much. I'm I'm glad I'm, I'm ecstatic that you feel that way and um, meant a lot coming from you. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Well, there are, or I should say, there were two stories in this film that really stirred my soul. First, the atomic bomb dropping on Hiroshima, and then Howard Kakita telling the story that he was, I could not believe this, he was only 4,400 feet from the epicenter of the bomb and lived to tell about it. 1,400 feet. Oh, 1,400 feet. 1.4 kilometers. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. That, that, and how he, how he and his brother and grandmother survived that is, is nothing but miraculous. I mean, did that stun you when you were sitting there and he was telling that story to you? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, um, not sure if you know this, but he was able to, Howard was actually able to, you know, provide us, because he, he lived there for some time, right, in the courtyard. He actually had a pretty decent memory of how the courtyard um, layout was, you know, the floor, the floor map. And, you know, when he was telling us, he told us that the only thing he remembered that survived the bombing was the, um, the water pump, the water pump in his courtyard. Um, 
But so he also had around seven or eight photographs. This is their family hanging hanging out at the courtyard. And so um, my art director, um, Yifu Kang, I really have to big him, give him a big shout out. He was able to take Howard's floor map and the different photographs and through different Zoom interviews, um, he was able to recreate Howard's courtyard um, digitally in 3D. And so, you know, the, the courtyard that you see in the film is actually one-to-one, like as one-to-one as you can get close to um, Howard's original home. And I remember when Howard finished watching it, he just told me it was like I was back home again. And that really shook me to my core, just hearing that from him. He's, he did not realize that it was going to be, you know, that similar to his house. And so, um, you know, as, I, as you said, though, when I first heard that story, you, we have to, there's no way you hear that and you half-ass the storyline. Right. Um, I realized that I had to pay Howard the respects that he deserves. And um, we wanted to do our best to recreate his home for him. And um, I, was, I was very proud of our, our VFX team. And, um, you know, to see his reaction to that was, was just incredible. But um, it's nothing compared to the first time I heard his story. You know, there's one thing to hear a story through a screen um there's another to hear it told to you and but the the thing with Howard with all the other with all the other interviews what I had done was I would zoom them first zoom interview them first so I would know the answers they would give and that way I could write out how I want the story to flow from one to another um so you know sometimes you need a sentence to transition from a story one strand of a story to another story um, so, so that, that, that's really important for why I had to do the zoom interview to, to know that I could get those and what the sentences were, um, but for Howard, he had, he had no contact information, you know, he, he there was no way to contact him. I saw him do one interview, uh, with the Washington post, but there's no contact information anywhere. He was always my dream interview because of just how, how perfectly his timeline aligned and how the vision would align perfectly with the story. Um, I do recall just texting my my team to being like, oh, we're not getting him, but you know, it would have been great if we had Howard. You know, I had given up on that. So the day before um, I had left to do all my interviews, I was gonna do a whole road trip around the US to film all the interviews. And um, a few months back, I had sent an email to the Atomic Bomb Society and um, never heard her back from them about Howard. You know, this is like, few months later but the day i was about to leave i get an email from howard saying that i'm interested to be in your film here's my phone number and uh at that point i was just like what do we do do we turn him down is this too late now i don't you know we have to we have to fit in another story here like how how is this gonna work out and um i asked him where he resided he said he still lives you know in la so that was pretty easy for me to fit him into the schedule. You know, we'll interview him if it's good. If the story fits, then we put it in the documentary. If not, you know, what's one more interview, right? We're already doing like 10 on the road. But when that day, I remember he told the story and um, I looked back at the sound guy that I hired and even he was kind of tearing up. And I was like, okay, we we got something special here. And um, 
just the way that he tells it with a haunting lucidity about how he remembers so many details clearly about the parts where he saw them and he related it to zombies marching. Um, you know, that just thinking back to that day, actually, he, <laughs> I remember after the interview, he got a, he gave me a photo of himself, right? And uh, I asked him if he could sign it. And he said, oh, if you, do you want to, do you want the front sign or the back sign? And um, I was like, oh, let's sign the back, right? And I took the photo home. I was about to frame it. I'm like, why did I sign the back? <laughs> no, no, no one would know that he signed this now. And so, yeah, next time I see him, I got to get, get him another photo to sign. But he's just, he's amazing, Howard. And, um, you know, so, so grateful to have him as a friend. And, you know, we still, we still keep in touch. Um, and just, I, I will never forget that day. That is the most incredible story. And, you know, it's funny, Danny, because as I was watching the film and the 3D rendition of The Courtyard, I kept thinking, how accurate is this? Because it was a very pretty courtyard. And for you to tell a story, I'm just like, wow, how incredible that is. And then when he, when his grandmother yelled at him and his brother to get off the roof because they saw the B-29 bomber coming, um... And then he, then they run, and he runs inside that bathhouse. And I'm thinking that the only way that he survived, that the tub he jumped into must have been made out of cast iron, and the only to survive that. Uh, their story is absolutely one of the most incredible that I've ever heard. But the other story that stirred me in your film was Isaac Woodard. Uh, I mean, a story from like 85 years ago, and. We are seeing even that the Jim Crow mentality is still alive today. Um, how did that story, uh, of course, that, of course, his story was directly related to Orson Welles. Uh, were you amazed to get the two people uh, in your film to talk about that? That is, um, that is an understatement. Um, so what had happened was, um, that I had, um, I had a, I told you about my dream list, right? Um, but on the dream list, there were a few Isaac Woodard um, historians type, you know, people who, professors who know about the story. And, you know, just thinking about it, you know, we have Orson Welles historians, we have Hearst historians. It's just like, ah, just, we need more direct knowledge of the story you know it's one thing for a historian to talk about uh, uh an event but to hear from a family member that would be that would be completely different um so i researched a lot about if isaac woodard had any surviving family members and um his great niece laura williams was actually an author at that time who just published her first book a children's book on the blinding of Isaac Woodard. And, um, you know, I didn't really, I took my time and I waited <laughs> a few months to craft like a perfect message to send to her on Facebook. And um, I remember on my birthday, I sent it. And um, a, a, a few days later, she replied that she'll be very interested in coming aboard to our project. And not only that, she was willing to ask her cousin, Robert, Robert Young, who actually was Isaac's caretaker at the end of his life. So Robert now is in his, um, I think he just turned 86. So 
to get that story from from those two sources, you know, I flew to New York, we did the interview. And when Robert spoke, when Robert, you know, was getting ready to be interviewed, his extended family all came to the Airbnb that we were at to pay their respects, you know, and Robert has such a optimistic point of view in, in about life or everything, you know, and I love how he, you know, wore a Statue of Liberty American tie to the interview, you know, he, see, he sees himself, he, he went to the army as well, you know, and um, he didn't let the Isaac incident um, affect how he viewed the world, you know, if anything, he, he, his point of view is that he wants more people to hear the story to end bigotry and racism. And he himself, very interesting to me, he says that he personally haven't dealt with much, but he has witnessed a lot. And so that's why he wants to keep telling the story and not let, let it be forgotten. I couldn't agree with him more. And I hope that we were able to um, do, do justice to, to his family. You did that. So what do you hope that this film will uh, accomplish? Hmm, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, you know, just to get it to this point where, you know, we have a distributor, we're being released, you know, that, that accomplished um, a lot of our goals already. Um, the festival run, I remember back in the day, it was just about, let's just get into one film festival, you know, <laughs> but that, that, that obviously it's been accomplished, but to me, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to put a limit to, to the goal, you know, let's see, I, I truly, you know, really believe in this film. I really want to see, I would not stop and, um, doing the most I can, turning over every stone, leaving no stones unturned to see how far we can take this film. And, um, I just want people to have a chance to watch it. You know, for me, I think that it's it's a it's a it's an extremely special story. I really want people to learn about Isaac and um, Howard and Orson's stories, and um, I just like how I just want it to have a chance, just like it did in Austin. You know, give us that first screening, the second screening, let the film speak for itself. You know, just like it did in um, London right now. You know, give us a week. And what proves to you why we deserve another week? You know, I think on on the surface, I'm sure you can probably see how, for for some people, this might be a tough sell at first. But once once they watch the film, I think that that viewpoint is going to be a bit different. So I think that I just I just want the opportunity, the film, I want the film to have the opportunity it deserves to be, you know, shown to shown to a wide, wide audience on a, on a streaming platform. I agree with that. And uh, where can everybody see American and Odyssey to 1947? Um, so as we're speaking right now, it's August 30th, but we're going to be in theaters in London until September 7th. After that, on September 8th, we have our um, New York theatrical run beginning at Cinema Village, screening every day, five times uh, for seven days. Um, and Cinema Village, September 8th, 6 p.m. That is when um, me and Laura, Isaac's family is going to be there uh, for a Q&A after the screening. So that's going to be very special. And then the film is going to release on video on demand on September 12th. 
so people can you know just get that off itunes amazon stuff like that your cable network and then on september 17th we have another special screening in london and um after that screening me and that's going to be at the birth of doc house but after that screening um simon callow and myself are going to do a q a after so i'm very excited for that as well well danny you should be highly complimented for creating one of the, the best film documentaries I've ever had the pleasure to watch. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to think about something. We, we may all look different on the outside, but, all, but our blood runs the same color. And when you see American in Odyssey to 1947, you will see that we, all, we should all live together in harmony and with respect, regardless what the media wants to do or the government wants to do. But to, to hear these stories, Orson Welles, Isaac Woodard, uh, Howard Kakita, I mean, Danny Wu brought us a film that we should be talking about for years to come. It is that great in the areas of filmmaking and storytelling but the greatest aspect of this film is it's all true. And we can all sit there and watch it and learn about one another in a very different way and in a way that we should, as after we see the film, we should look at each other a little bit differently. Uh, we should be able to inspire one another, motivate one another, encourage one another befriend one another and be kind to one another because what has happened to those in this story it shouldn't be happening ever again but it's up to, it's up to us to be that change and Danny Wu again has brought one of the most incredible film documentaries you will ever see and you will enjoy every moment of it I will tell you that so you need so when it comes to streaming, or if you're living in London or wherever this film is being seen, go see American, an odyssey to 1947. Danny, I want to thank you so much for honoring us with your time today. The, the pleasure is all mine, and I want to thank you for having me on your show and um, you know, speaking so highly of our film, whether deserved or not, but I'm just extremely glad that you, you liked our film. I did. I absolutely loved it. And it deserves every kudos and praise and any award that it comes its way. And again, ladies and gentlemen, uh, when it comes to streaming, check out American and Odyssey to 1947, written, produced, filmed, and directed by Danny Wu. And as for me, thank you for watching the Ward Bond Show, and I'll see you next time.